What's up, everyone? I'm Joe Pompliano, and this is The Joe Pomp Show. I hope everyone's having a great week so far. Today's episode is going to be a ton of fun. We got three main topics to talk about. Number one, Tiger Woods leaving Nike. Tiger has been with Nike for nearly 30 years and made hundreds of millions of dollars, but a storm is brewing, and there's reports that he's going to be leaving Nike at the end of this year. We'll talk through why Nike is letting him go and what his next steps might be. Number two, Prime Hydration. Patrick Mahomes recently signed an endorsement deal with Prime, joining a list of a ton of other athletes and organizations across sports. We'll talk why this makes sense for Mahomes, what happened with BioSteel, and what Prime Hydration is eventually going to sell for. And number three, NIL. I want to talk about how NIL is evening the college football playing field. We'll talk about some of the top recruits in this year's class, some of the TV ratings, and more. This is going to be a super fun episode, so let's get right into it. All right, so we're going to talk about Tiger Woods leaving Nike, but I want to start with a quick story. So let's set the stage. It's 1996. There's this 20-year-old kid from Stanford who arrived at Pumpkin Ridge Golf Club in Oregon looking to become the first person to win three consecutive U.S. amateur championships. That player was Tiger Woods, of course. But many of you might not remember that a University of Florida student named Steve Scott had him on the ropes. Scott had won two high school state championships. He was a three-time All-American at Florida. He was a great player, and he started the final round up five shots on Tiger Woods, and he still led by two shots with just three holes to go. But then Steve Scott did something that Tiger Woods himself will probably never forget. Tiger had moved his ball marker on the 16th green so that Scott could putt. But after Scott putted, Tiger went back to putt himself, and he forgot to replace his marker. That would typically lead to a penalty, which would have resulted in Tiger losing the hole and the match. But instead of just letting it happen, Steve Scott reminded Tiger to move his ball marker back. Now, Tiger ended up making that putt to win the hole. He pulled within one shot with two holes to play, and he later won his third straight U.S. Amateur Championship in a playoff. It was a remarkable example of sportsmanship. Steve Scott later said, that was the right thing to do. There was no way I was going to do it any other way. Now, some of you may remember this and some of you may not, but if you don't, I recommend you go watch the highlights on YouTube. Just fast forward to the 16th green and you'll see exactly what I'm talking about. There was no hesitation in Steve Scott's voice. He reminded Tiger Woods right away when he saw it. And again, it was just this awesome example of sportsmanship that isn't replicated in most sports today. Tiger then turned professional, of course, and he has since earned $120 million in prize money, far and away more than anyone else on the PGA Tour. But more importantly, this was the last round of competitive golf where Tiger Woods didn't wear Nike gear, as he later signed a $40 million contract with Nike later that year. Nike founder Phil Knight said at the time, the world has not seen anything like what he's going to do for the sport. It's almost art. I wasn't alive to see Claude Monet paint, the French painter, but I am alive to see Tiger play, and that's pretty great. Now, Nike's partnership with Tiger Woods is one of the most iconic deals in sports history today. Tiger's initial contract was worth $40 million over five years. That was the largest golf endorsement deal at the time. And Nike has paid him over $500 million in total. So again, to break it down, he signed a five-year deal in 1996 worth $40 million. Then in 2001, when that initial deal was up, he signed another five-year deal worth $100 million. Then when that five-year deal was up in 2006, he signed an eight-year deal that was estimated to be worth $160 million to $320 million. Now, the reason why these estimates are so wide is because there's a lot of royalties in these deals, and there's a lot of other things that stipulate the annual payments. 
But then he signed another deal. His last deal came in 2013. This was the longest of the four deals. It was a 10-year deal for $200 million. Again, by far and away, the largest endorsement deal that we had ever seen in the history of the sport. So if you add those four deals up, he made somewhere between $500 million to $660 million from his one sponsorship with Nike alone. That doesn't count the $120 million in prize money. It doesn't count any of his other sponsorships with companies like Monster or other businesses like that. Now, that's not all that happened with Nike. Nike also opened up a building on their campus in Beaverton, Oregon. It was a conference center called Tiger Woods Conference Center in 2001. And the largest sportswear company in the world stuck with Tiger Woods through everything. I mean, we all know what Tiger has been through. We're talking extramarital affairs in 2009, the DUI he had in 2017. And there was like a whole host of different injuries all the way from 2014 to 2017 and even beyond with the recent car accident. Nike has been there through it all. Now, the reason for this is actually quite simple. Tiger Woods is still one of the world's most popular golfers by a mile, despite the injuries, despite the affair, despite the DUI and everything else. Still the most popular golfer in the world. And he has helped make Nike Golf a ton of money over the last 27 years of their partnership. To give you a little context on just how important Tiger Woods has been to the Nike Golf business, Nike Golf was doing $30 million in annual revenue before signing Tiger Woods. But just two years after signing Tiger Woods, that number increased to $300 million in annual revenue. So again, in 1995, Nike Golf was doing $30 million in annual revenue. By 1998, just two years after signing Tiger Woods, they were doing $300 million in annual revenue. It's also estimated that Tiger's 2019 Masters final round victory was worth over $22 million to Nike in brand exposure alone. But after 27 years and more than $500 million in payments, this partnership might finally be ended. Tiger's latest deal with Nike is set to expire at the end of this year, and many people are speculating that the two parties will eventually part ways without a new deal. Now, these rumors first surfaced on the No Laying Up podcast last month, but Tiger was asked about it at the PNC Championship this past weekend. A media member asked him, there's been a lot of chatter over the last month or so on your relationship with Nike and where that's going. Can you give any clarity to that? Tiger responded, I'm still wearing their product. The media member pressed again. Is this the end of it coming up? Tiger responded again, I'm still wearing their product. Now, obviously, that's essentially a non-answer. But some of this could have been predicted. Nike stopped making golf equipment in 2016, so Tiger has a deal with TaylorMade for clubs. He also uses Bridgestone for golf balls, and he has worn FootJoy shoes for extra support after returning from the 2016 car accident. But the real question is, what will Tiger Woods do if he isn't with Nike? Now, one theory is that TaylorMade will increase its apparel offering starting in 2024. They have already dropped a few different hints on their website and social media, and they have equipment deals with other Nike golfers too, including Rory McIlroy, Scotty Scheffler, and Tommy Fleetwood. So if Nike were to reduce its golf offering or even shut down the business entirely, it's easy to connect the dots and see why a company like TaylorMade would make sense. Still, the more logical choice, for Tiger Woods at least, is actually Grayson. Grayson is a newer golf clothing brand that has exploded onto the scene over the last few years. They gave Justin Thomas equity in the brand after he was dropped from Ralph Lauren in 2021, and the company now has deals with a whole host of athletes across different sports, including Matt Fitzpatrick on the PGA Tour, Luke Donald on the PGA Tour, Ian Happ in Major League Baseball, Dylan Larkin in the NHL, and Allison Lee on the LPGA Tour. Now, the reason why I think this makes sense for Tiger specifically is twofold. Number one, Grayson welcomed Tiger's 14-year-old son, Charlie Woods, as a brand ambassador in a now-deleted Instagram post this past Monday. And number two, 
Grayson's current equity partnership with Justin Thomas, who just happens to be one of Tiger's best friends on the tour, means that the brand understands the long-term gain of giving up equity in exchange for promotion. Tiger, of course, could go out and start his own brand and make millions of dollars. No one is arguing that. I think we all understand that. But this reminds me of when Roger Federer left Nike for a 3% equity stake in On Running. The retired tennis star ended up making more than $300 million when On Running went public in 2021, and Tiger's opportunity with Grayson could be similar in value. Ultimately, the endorsement business is super tough. Tiger Woods has obviously provided a lot of value to Nike over the years. He's made them billions of dollars. But Nike has also notoriously stuck to their rule of not spending more than 10% of category revenue on athlete sponsorships. So again, if they're making $100 million, we'll just say as an example, they're not going to spend more than $10 million on athlete endorsements. So if revenue continues to decline or doesn't expand in the way that they think, they cannot continue to pay athletes like Tiger Woods and others more and more money every year. So we'll see what happens. Tiger has publicly said that he won't play in more than a handful of tournaments each year. And even with the Saudi-backed Live Golf Tour disrupting the professional ranks over the last few years, golf is more popular than ever before. I want to give you guys a few stats here just to show you how popular golf is becoming. 41.1 million Americans ages 6 and up played golf, both on course and off course, in 2022. Also in 2022, on course golf participation was up with a net increase of 500,000 new golfers to a total of 25.6 million on course golfers alone. 2022 was also the fifth straight year of increase in on course golf. There's been a net gain of 1.3 million on course golfers over the past three years alone. And 3.3 million people played a golf course for the first time ever in 2022. As I said, things like Full Swing on Netflix and the disruption even from the PGA Tour and Live Golf has made golf more popular than ever before. And when you combine that with people getting outside during the COVID-19 pandemic, things are really looking up for the sport. And that's why I'm so surprised that Nike is willing to let someone like Tiger Woods go. I think this speaks to what we'll see with Nike Golf going forward. Maybe they'll continue to wind down the brand or even shut it down altogether. But losing someone like Tiger Woods, even with him just playing a handful of tournaments every single year, is obviously a huge loss for the brand. All right, let's take a quick break before we get into a couple of our other topics today. All right, welcome back, everyone. The next thing I want to talk about today is Patrick Mahomes signing an endorsement deal with Prime. Now, many of you probably already know that Prime is a sports drink company founded by popular YouTubers Logan Paul and KSI. There's been a lot of debate over the last few years of whether they actually own the brand or not. The easiest way to explain the relationship here is that another company, another business, founded the company, they do all of the manufacturing, they do all of the distribution, they do a lot of the marketing, and they simply sign these licensing deals or equity deals with Logan Paul and KSI to be equity partners in the brand and use them as marketing material. Now, I don't know the exact equity splits here, but I would assume they own a significant amount, maybe 20% each or something like that. And the reason why I believe that is because they have put their full brand behind this brand over the last few years. I mean, these guys are traveling all over the world. We're talking about the US, Europe, Australia, they were at for a drink launch. They're going on radio shows. They're doing photo shoots. They're doing everything that is required of them to build this business up. And you're not doing that for a 1% stake or a 3% stake or a 5% stake. They have to own meaningful equity in the brand for it to make sense. And I think that's exactly what they've done. But the reason why I want to talk about today is twofold. Number one, Prime has made a lot of headwind in the sports sector over the last few years. If you think about who's dominated this category, it's historically been Gatorade. I mean, Gatorade does over $7 billion or close to $10 billion, even in some years, in annual sales. Body Armor is the second biggest company in the space. They do $1.4 billion in annual sales. Powerade has done $1.2 billion in sales over the last 12 months. And Prime is number four. 
I mean, Prime did $565 million in sales over the last 12 months. They think that over the next 12 months, they say this, that they're going to hit $1.2 billion in sales. I mean, $1.2 billion in sales would put them significantly behind Gatorade, but they're eating up market share. I mean, that would make them number two or number three biggest sports drink company in the United States and in the world. I mean, that is absolutely massive and it's huge and it's great for them, right? But when it comes to Mahomes, this is super unique because not only have they signed deals with a bunch of other athletes, we're talking Erling Holland, a couple of different UFC fighters, Austin Matthew, Terrence Crawford. They've signed deals with the LA Dodgers, Arsenal, FC Barcelona, Bayern Munich, and many other teams and individual athletes. But the reason why Mahomes is interesting is because many of you will remember, we talked about it on the podcast and I wrote about it in the newsletter. Mahomes had an equity endorsement deal with a company called BioSteel. Now, BioSteel was started by an athlete named Mike Camarelli. He was an NHL player. He had a 15-year career, pretty good player. He wanted a healthier alternative sports drink than was currently on the market, so he started this company called BioSteel. And they took the world by storm for a couple of years. I mean, they were signing every athlete you could imagine. Mahomes, Luka Doncic, Connor McDavid, Jamar Chase, Wayne Gretzky, Jalen Ramsey, DeAndre Hopkins, Andrew Wiggins, Connor Bedard, Ezekiel Elliott, Glaber Torres, Alfonso Davies, Aaron Andrews, Steve Nash. Like the list goes on and on and on and on. They had so many different endorsement deals. And a lot of people in the space were wondering like, how are they doing this? What do the sales look like? And we didn't have any numbers on it for a period of time, but numbers more came out later on. And what we realized was it was all kind of a dream. They weren't really making that much money at all. There was another company called Canopy Growth that owned about 90% of the business. And BioSteel was burning more than $10 million per month and had essentially lost the $273 million that Canopy Growth had invested in the business. So BioSteel ends up going bankrupt earlier this year, and they owed a bunch of different money to creditors. I mean, they owed almost $9 million on their deal with the NHL. They owed $2.5 million to the LA Lakers for their deal. They owed almost a million dollars to the Miami Heat. They owed $675,000 to USA Soccer. They owed Andrew Wiggins $658,000 to the Brooklyn Nets $624,000. Rogers Media $428,000. The Philadelphia 76ers nearly $300,000. And USA Hockey almost $200,000. So they owed millions of dollars to different people that they had signed these deals with. But the interesting part with Mahomes is he was actually paraded around as an investor in the brand. Now, I've gotten word from different people around the industry, including Mahomes' agent, that essentially said Mahomes didn't actually invest his own money. In most cases, and what was the case here, was that Mahomes received equity as part of his endorsement deal. So part of it is delivered in cash, and then part of it is delivered via equity. So no cash actually left his pocket for the deal. Now, of course, a company like BioSteel and many other companies do the same thing. They go out and they parade him as an investor, not telling anyone that they actually paid him in equity to do the endorsement deal. But when that company went bankrupt, that essentially made Mahomes' equity in that business worth $0. I mean, he's not worth anything when it comes to the equity of that business because they went bankrupt and they're trying to do a fire sale now. But he had another option. So he goes out, that deal ends up going bankrupt. He now signs this deal with Prime just a few months later, and it fills up his category from a sports drink perspective and an endorsement perspective. Now, we don't know how much he's getting paid. We don't know if he's getting equity in the brand, but they did deliver a video uh, as part of the marketing campaign where they gave $100,000 to his charity as well. Now, the thing I would say about this is that there's been a lot of complaints about Prime as a drink. A lot of people don't like the taste of it. They get mad at the resale values because if you can't buy it on the primary market, you can find them online selling for three, four, five times the price on eBay or a similar site like that. And they say, does Mahomes actually drink this? Does he drink it during a game? Do any of these other athletes drink it while they're training or anything else like that? And what I would say about that is that's not always the case, of course, right? In most cases that you're drinking the product that is provided to you by the team or the league. Some athletes are willing to put them and disguise them in different containers and things like that. But whether Mahomes feels strongly about this product or not, 
there are many products that are promoted around sports by different athletes and leagues that are not the best products for you. So Prime, everyone can take it for what it's worth and you can taste the product and you can read the ingredients and see if it's with you or not. But for Mahomes, this is a good deal because he's attaching himself to a brand that in my opinion is going to sell in the next few years for several billion dollars. I mean, if you think about body armor, they were doing a similar number of sales to what Prime is doing today when they sold for $5.6 billion to Coca-Cola a few years ago. Now, obviously, Kobe Bryant made hundreds of millions of dollars on that deal as an equity holder in body armor. Mahomes, we don't know if he'll have a similar outcome. My guess is no, because he would have had to put some cash into himself. But he's going to end up not only making some money from this, but when Prime eventually sells, because they will eventually sell. That's the end game here. Logan Paul and KSI aren't going to want to promote this drink forever. The plan is probably to sell within the next two to three years and time this up with a peak interest in the drink itself. Mahomes' name is going to be attached to that product as someone that was a supporter of them, was an endorser of the product, and ultimately it's going to be seen as a success. So, you know, take it for what it's worth. If you don't like the drink, I get it. If you don't like Logan Paul and KSI, I get it. I'm just here to deliver you the news and let you know that I think it's a smart agreement for Patrick Mahomes to be associated with the brand because not only is he getting paid in endorsement money, but the company is eventually going to be sold and his name is going to be tied to that success story for Prime. All right, let's take one more break before we get to our last topic, how NIL is evening the college football playing field. All right, let's end today's episode talking about how name, image, and likeness, NIL, is evening the playing field across college football. Now, name, image, and likeness was implemented a couple of years ago. At its core, it just allows athletes in, in college sports to monetize their name, image, and likeness. They can go out and they can sign endorsement deals with different companies. They can do partnerships. They can do camps. They can do all these other things by monetizing their name, image, and likeness. Now, the reason why this is so important, of course, is because while all athletes are getting paid, this is predominantly impacting college football because that's where most of the eyeballs are and that's where most of the money is being made. It's obviously having an impact on where players are going to school, but I think the undercurrent of all of this is that it's evening the playing field across college football. Where college football had been dominated by the same blue blood programs over the last few years, we're talking about Alabama, we're talking about Georgia, Ohio State, different schools like that. It's now evening the playing field and we're seeing a bunch of different teams pop up with not only recruits, but wins and making it a more competitive environment across the sport. Now, one of the most interesting things about this came up this week when the number one overall quarterback in this year's class, the number two overall recruit, Dylan Riola, a quarterback from Georgia, decommitted from Georgia, who he had been committed to for months and ended up committing to Nebraska. Now, he has family ties with Nebraska, and it's not a huge idea that he's going there. But ultimately, this speaks to what we're seeing on the NIL side. NIL has completely evened the playing field when it comes to recruiting because the schools in the past, the Alabamas, the Georgias, the LSU schools like that, they still have that same advantage where the coach can go in the living room and say, hey, you're going to come to my school, you're going to win championships, you're going to become an All-American, and here's how many players, hundreds of them, that I have sent to the National Football League to earn millions of dollars. This is how many first-round picks we had last year, this is how many we've had over the past 10 years, and this is why you should come to my school because you will eventually be a first-round pick and make a boatload of money as well. But that negotiating tactic has changed because of NIL. Now schools can gather all their booster money together and then go out and they negotiate these deals with the players themselves and get them to commit to their school rather than committing to an Alabama or a Georgia or an Oregon or an Oklahoma or an LSU or a Notre Dame or someone else like that. And what we've seen is the top 10 recruits in this year's recruiting class are all going to different schools. I mean, the schools that are represented, a lot of them are the same schools you would imagine. But the fact that not any of them are going to the same school where Alabama would have gotten multiple recruits in the top 10, or Georgia historically would have gotten multiple recruits in the top 10. Now they're going to Ohio State, Nebraska, Missouri, Alabama, Auburn, Texas Tech, Oklahoma, Georgia, Texas, and Miami. 10 different schools 
are represented within the top 10. And that speaks to NIL, of course. But what I think we've also seen is that combined with the transfer portal has fundamentally changed college football, in my mind, forever. If you look at the parity this year alone, I mean, we had six, seven teams that could have been in the top four. Everyone was arguing about Alabama getting in over Florida State, but you could have made an argument for Georgia, of course. I mean, they lost one game this year. Ohio State, they lost one game this year to the team that is currently ranked number one in the country. Oregon, sure, they lost two games, but they were to the same team, the team that is ranked number two in the country today. So again, there were six, seven, eight teams that you could have argued to get in the 14 playoff. Now, obviously, it's going to be helpful when the playoff committee expands and we can get all of these teams in. But I can't remember a year over the last decade, at least, where we've been saying that there are six, seven, eight teams that could go out and win a national championship. It's always been pretty clear who the top two, three, four teams are every single year, irregardless of what the record actually says. But this year, it's a little bit different. There's eight really good teams, and you could argue for any of them that they deserve to be in the college football playoff. Now, when you think about the transfer portal, I think it's even the playing field along with NIL. But more importantly, what I think it's done is it has lessened the impact of bowl season. I can't remember a year where bowl season has been less talked about than it has this year. I mean, think about it. If you're not a college football playoff game, so obviously they rotate the New Year Six Bowls to determine the college football playoff games. But if you're not one of those two games that are chosen, the game is significantly less talked about than it would be. And one reason for this has always been there, which is players. If you're really good and you're going to be a high draft pick, maybe you're going to opt out of the game so you don't get hurt and hurt your draft stock. But the second reason for this is now the transfer portal exists, right? And players are transferring or entering the transfer portal and going to other teams or committing to other schools or taking visits to other schools before bowl season even starts, right? So if you're a quarterback or a running back or a defensive line or an offensive line or a quarterback, the position really doesn't matter, actually. If you're a good player on one of these teams and you enter the transfer portal, you're most likely not going to be playing in that bowl game. So now we're looking at games where the teams are a shell of them for themselves. I mean, if you look at Georgia or Ohio State, these teams are a shell of themselves because they're not going to have some of their starting players because they're not in the college football playoff. Now, if you're not one of those top four teams and you're not competing for a national championship, the stakes have drastically been reduced. And I think this also impacts the fandom, right? If we talk about long-term viewership, I mean, there were a number of teams that averaged a lot of viewers this year. Alabama had the most viewers, 7.1 million viewers per game. Ohio State was number two. Colorado with Deion Sanders was number three. They averaged 6 million viewers per game. Obviously, the team didn't perform as many people expected them to, especially given the start. But that speaks to Deion Sanders and the value that he is providing from an eyeball perspective. They had more viewers for their games this year than Georgia, than Michigan, than Tennessee, than Oregon, than Texas, than Florida State, than Notre Dame, right? These are big programs that are committing millions of dollars every single year in NIL money to their players. Deion Sanders is essentially doing that with himself, with his personality, with the attention that he commands. So I think that's another thing that is even the playing field. But more importantly, back to the fandom. What I think we've seen is that it has changed fandom for college sports too. If you just look at the biggest fan bases in the country across college sports, typically what's happened is players come in, they're there for three, four, five, maybe even six years, depending on injuries and scholarships and things like that. But they're there for a number of years and you're able to follow them from the recruiting trail all the way to graduation, right? Sure, there were some transfers and other things like that, but it was far less common than it is today. And you were able to emotionally attach yourself to a player, right? If you think about Tom Brady, Tom Brady openly talks about this all the time of how he almost transferred out of Michigan, but he ends up staying. You're able to attach yourself emotionally to his career, to his trajectory. And then when he gets to the pros, you have this belonging and this passion about him as a player. Now, that has been true for the history of college football. This is not a new thing. But what has changed over the last few years is with the transfer portal and NIL, it has become much more fluid. There's thousands of athletes that are entering the transfer portal every year. And now players are going to a bunch of different schools and you don't know if they're going to be staying there. 
I mean, we saw it this week. If you look at USC, they're potentially bringing in a new quarterback in the transfer portal. So their five-star quarterback, the number one overall quarterback recruit last year, who committed to the school and was there this past year, has entered the transfer portal. That's someone that you assume there with Lincoln Riley is going to be there for the duration of his career. Why would you recruit him? Why would you spend money and time and resources on developing him? You already have a good head coach. You have a big program. You have the resources from an NIL perspective to pay him. You would not expect him to leave, but he's leaving because the instant satisfaction of getting a better player at the time being, rather than waiting two to three years for him to become that player, is more rewarding for the coach and the program today than it is in the future. So again, this has changed because as a fan now, you don't need to follow the messaging boards. You don't need to follow the recruiting trail as much as you probably did in the past because you don't know if that player is going to be there in two years, in three years, or hell, even 12 months, you don't know if that player is going to be there. So this is something that I think has the ability to. I don't, I don't want to say it will because we don't know per se, but I think it has the ability to impact viewership long-term in college football. Look, college football was never more popular than it was this year. Literally more minutes on television were watched of college football this year than any year prior. So it's more popular than it's ever been. And NIL is obviously a good thing letting players get paid. Maybe that eventually changes if we do some of the things that Chip Kelly talked about this past week with paying different players, things that Jim Harbaugh and other people have talked about as well. Maybe some of that changes. But the transfer portal is obviously a new thing, and you can't argue with the success of the viewership and the importance of the sport overall. But what I will say is that it is fundamentally changing the way that fans interact with their teams. You no longer have to care about messaging boards, per se. You don't have to care about the recruiting trail. Sure, the rankings may matter today, but will they matter in 12 months? Are those players still going to be there? What's going to happen in the transfer portal? Is your coach going to leave? These are all things that obviously drum up discussion and are good for the sport overall. But again, these are things that could also hurt the sport long-term, and it's something that college football and the powers that be need to be aware of. That's it for today, everyone. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast. I hope everyone has a great day. If you enjoyed this podcast, please make sure to leave me a five-star review on Apple or Spotify or wherever you're listening to this podcast. Tell me what you enjoyed, what I can be doing better. Have a great day, and we'll talk later this week.